Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black coming at you from the first couple days of 2022, the new year is upon us and some things are unchanging. For example, I have in my possession a big mug of English breakfast tea with just a splash of milk. And uh, I'm trying to determine if it's too hot to sip or not. Let's find out. Mm-hmm. Yes, still too hot to sip. The new year began here in sultry Savannah with... Uh, unaccustomed sounds to my carpet-bagging ears. The sounds of fireworks, yes, but also the sounds of automatic gunfire. I should say semi-automatic gunfire. Uh, There's some real redneck shit that goes on down here where people just shoot their guns off into the air to ring in the new year. And the wife and I were planning on taking a stroll down to the river where there are fireworks and celebrations and crowds gathered. It's probably a 15 or 20 minute walk from our haunted mansion. And we got out there and Martha starts hearing, you know, the gunfire and she's thinking, well, you know, those bullets come up. They, they got to come back down. And she said, maybe we shouldn't walk to the river's edge. And, you know, I was fine with that. I, I kind of wanted to get my steps in because it's a, you know, it's probably 5,000 steps there and back. But, you know, I also didn't want to have a bullet fall on my head. So we came back in and I haven't heard of any casualties of the evening. I suspect there were none, but it was somewhat disconcerting nonetheless. As I may have mentioned previously and just re-mentioned with my steps, I am trying to make up for two years of COVID Tostito eating. I have been restricting my caloric intake for the last, oh, what, six weeks? Now less, four or five weeks, something like that. And, uh, you know, trying to get back down to fighting weight because, you know, I got that big fight coming up. And it hasn't been that bad. You know, the, the worst part of any diet, I find, is just the start. And then you just kind of get into it, and it's, it's generally fine. And then about two months later, you give up. That's g- generally the way I do it. But so far, it's been fine. I'm allowed to have my English breakfast tea, no problem. Mostly, just I'm, mostly I'm just eating chicken breasts and salad and mustard. And I bought some jalapeno peppers to put on my salad yesterday. And oh, that, that just livened things up. So, you know, it's not, that, it's not so bad. I don't mind it so much. And uh, yeah, I mean, my, my, my life since last we spoke in 2021 has remained largely, as I said, unchanged. What is new, I'm trying to think of what's new, nothing, 
nothing is the answer. 2022 has begun uh, just as 2021 ended with a variant of the COVID-19 virus racing across the country everywhere you go now. It seems like you're putting yourself in danger of contracting the Omicron. And uh, I haven't gotten it yet, but I expect I will. How could you not at this point? Yeah, I'm vaxxed. Yeah, I'm boosted. Yeah, I've got the constitution of a ox on steroids, but at the same time, so many people are getting it or getting it again. Uh, the difference between now and back then, back then meaning before we were vaccinated and before there were treatments, was, you, you know, you, you thought to yourself, oh, geez, how, what, what's going to happen if I get the COVID? And you thought, well, there, there could be a bad outcome. Now, once you're vaccinated and everything, you think, well, I'll just be out of commission for a few days, which would be fine ordinarily for me, except I'm not in commission. So I have nothing to decommission. My commissioning is the same whether I'm sick or not, so I might as well not be sick. Since, since it's not going to give me a break from anything, I'm already on break. Probably a permanent sort of break. That's a, that, so another thing that carries over from 2021 to 2022 is the uh, anxiety, the professional anxiety that kind of prompted my move to Savannah in the first place, that professional anxiety has not abated one little bit and sees no sign of abating. Uh, what would cause an abatement? A job. But this is my job, pretty much my only job right now, and the pay is terrible. Nonetheless, we are underway with our journey, and so far, a delightful journey it's been. We're in chapter three, I believe, of Wuthering Heights. Um, last time we met, Lockwood had fastened himself in a little futon cabinet and started reading letters from the previous occupant, Catherine, who uh, was sort of giving us information about the family and her relationship with Heathcliff growing up. And we, when we concluded last time, she was just sort of wrapping up an entry into her journal. So let us pick up again, Chapter 3, Wuthering Heights. I suppose Catherine fulfilled her project, for the next sentence took up another subject, and the project that she's talking about is uh, going off with Heathcliff to the moors, I guess, and putting on the dairy woman's cloak and having a scamper about, you know, having some fun out there on the moors. And that sounds pleasant enough, does it not? There's some sound emanating from my house right now. It seems to have stopped, but it was a kind of rattly sound, not like a, not like a Marley's Ghost sort of chain rattle, but something mechanical. It started, I've never heard it before, it started and stopped. May have been some plumbing or something. But you know, in an old house, anytime you hear anything new, you think, oh, it's coming down on me. It's coming down on me. So I suppose Catherine fulfilled her project for the next sentence, took up another subject. She waxed lacrimose. Uh, and... Now I gotta crank. I mean, we're not getting anywhere. Right? I have to crank up the research machine because I feel like I kind of know what lacrimose means. Sort of sad, right? Like, sort of sad, right? Is that lacrimose? Tearful or given to weeping. That's what lacrimose means. So yeah, sad. Could have just said sad, Emily. You could have just said sad, Emily. You don't need to show off. Such a show off of these Bronte girls. 
Uh, so now this is Catherine speaking. How little did I dream that Hindley would ever make me cry so, she wrote. My head aches till I cannot keep it on the pillow, and still I can't give over. Poor Heathcliff. Hindley calls him a vagabond and won't let him sit with us, nor eat with us any more. And, he says, he and I must not play together, and threatens to turn him out of the house if we break his orders. He has been blaming our father, how dared he, for treating H too liberally, and swears he will reduce him to his right place. End. So, uh, if you recall, Hindley is the new master of the house, the old master of the house, just been buried. Hindley, kind of a cruel fella. And Heathcliff, again, the mystery deepens. We don't know why he is in this house. He is not related to Catherine. And yet somehow he's here. He's like a runaway or something. I don't know what he is. Okay. I began to nod. This is Lockwood now. Back to Lockwood. I began to nod drowsily over the dim page. My eye wandered from manuscript to print. Uh, so the journal is written in, an, in a book. I saw a red ornamented title, 70 times 7 in the first of the 71st, a pious discourse delivered by the Reverend Jabes Branderham in the chapel of Jimmerton Sow. Good American name there. The chapel of Jimmerton Sow. And while I was, because this is, as we know, an American novel, and while I was half-consciously half worrying my brain to guess what Jabe's Branderham would make of his subject, I sank back in bed and fell asleep. The, the sound is back, the mechanical sound. I don't know if you can hear it. Probably not through this microphone. It's distracting to me, but hopefully not to you. Alas for the effects of bad tea and bad temper. What else could it be that made me pass such a terrible night? I don't remember another that I can at all compare it with since I was capable of suffering. I began to dream almost before I ceased to be sensible of my locality. I thought it was morning, and I had set out on my way home with Joseph for a guide. The snow lay yards deep in our road, and as we floundered on, my companion wearied me with constant reproaches that I had not brought a pilgrim's staff, telling me that I could never get into the house without one, and boastfully flourishing a heavy-headed cudgel, which I understood to be so denominated. So, dreams are, dreams are always—I I never like dreams in novels. I never do. I always, I always just kind of want to skip over them. Uh, I find them kind of boring, and then you have to then you have to go back and try to piece together whatever the hell the the dream was even meant to mean. And uh, so let's just take a moment and and look at it. I found out what the rattling noise was, by the way. Not plumbing at all. I mean, you're, you're, you're I mean, you're going to laugh when you when you hear what the answer is. It was the printer. <laughs> Are you laughing? Sure, you're laughing. It was a mechanical sound, a rattling sound, and it turns out it was Martha printing wirelessly from the other room. God, we have fun. God, we have fun. But it's good that the house isn't falling down on me. Um, okay, so he set out on my way home with Joseph for a guide. So let's let's imagine for a moment that home isn't home, but is uh, what? Because uh, because uh, I haven't brought a pilgrim staff, he can't get into the house without one. What's well? What's a pilgrim staff for? Pilgrims? What are they trying to do? They're trying to get into the kingdom of heaven, which is of course home. And Joseph, with his heavy-headed cudgel, uh, is saying, "If you had a if you had a big staff like me, you wouldn't have any trouble." And remember, Joseph was being heavy-handed uh, when he was playing the role of chaplain to the young children, 
Catherine and Heathcliff among them, saying, Read your books, you fooks. For a moment, I considered it absurd that I should need such a weapon to gain admittance into my own residence. Then a new idea flashed across me. I was not going there. We were journeying to hear the famous Jabes Branderham preach from the text 70 times 7. And either Joseph, the preacher, or I had committed the first of the 71st and were to be publicly exposed and excommunicated. So, yeah, I mean, I I guess not going to heaven, but going to the chapel. We came to the chapel. I have passed it, really, in my walks twice or thrice. It lies in a hollow between two hills, an elevated hollow near a swamp whose peaty moisture is said to answer all the purposes of embalming on the few corpses deposited there. So they just throw the bodies in the, in the peat? Is that what happens? That's kind of creepy. Or maybe, there, maybe, maybe he's just saying that sometimes people just fall and die in the peat. You know, the way you do. The roof has been kept whole hitherto, but as the clergyman's stipend is only 20 pounds per annum, and a house with two rooms, threatening speedily to determine into one, see, you know, this is just a nice little quip. You know, a house with two rooms, threatening speedily to determine into one. That's a, this is what I like about Bronte so far. Just little quips, little things. No clergyman will undertake the duties of pastor, especially as it is currently reported that his flock would rather let him starve than increase the living by one penny from their own pockets. However, in my dream, Jabes had a full and attentive congregation and he preached. Good God, what a sermon! Divided into 490 parts, each fully equal to an ordinary address from the pulpit and each discussing a separate sin. Where he searched for them, I cannot tell. He had his private manner of interpreting the phrase, and it seemed necessary the brother should sin different sins on every occasion. So this is his dream, and it sounds like it sounds like an awfully long dream. Four hundred and ninety parts to the sermon. My God, on sin, and no wonder he had a troubled night. That's a long time to sit for a sermon. You know, last week I told you I sat for an hour in the Christmas. Mass and it was nice, but they, you know, there was a brass orchestra and there was a praline cake at the end, and then the the homily itself was probably what ten minutes or something. That's the only reason I like going to these masses. Really, I like homilies. I've always I'm I'm a fan of them. You know, I like a thoughtful homily, but I don't think I could sit through four hundred and ninety parts. They were of the most curious character, odd transgressions that I never imagined previously, meaning the sins. Oh, how weary I grew, how I writhed and yawned and nodded and revived, how I pinched and pricked myself and rubbed my eyes and stood up and sat down again and nudged Joseph to inform me if he would ever have done. I was condemned to hear all out. So he, in the dream, he heard this 490-part sermon. I wonder how much of it he remembered. I mean, you could, I mean, that's how, like, I feel like that's how uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments. That's how Joseph, uh, Joseph, what's his face? Uh, Smith received the Book of Mormon, you know, just in a kind of dream. There's something messianic about this dream. I mean, if you can remember a sermon, 490 parts delivered to you in a dream, it seems to me you ought to write it down. Don't you think? The way that all of you take notes on this podcast. The way all, 
the way I know all of you are sitting down at your desks as you listen to this quill in hand, jotting down every word I say. That's what I feel like Lockwood should be doing after hearing this dream. All right, let's take a quick break. Back in a moment on Obscure. Back now on Obscure Wuthering Heights. We're in the middle of a dream. You know, it's a long dream. It's causing a troubled night for poor Lockwood there in his his, uh, bento box at Wuthering Heights. And he's complaining and he says, I was condemned to hear all out, all of the sermon. Finally, he reached the first of the 71st. (laughs) So... You know, that's just, so I guess that was the first half of the sermon. At that crisis, a sudden inspiration descended on me. I was moved to rise and denounce James Bradraham as the sinner of the sin that no Christian need pardon. Ooh, what's that sin? I denounce James Bradraham as the sinner of the sin that no Christian need pardon. What sin is that? Is it, uh, is it apostasy? Is that what it is? Like, what's the sin that does not need parting? Let's read on. Sir, I exclaimed, sitting here within these four walls, at one stretch I have endured and forgiven the 490 heads of your discourse. Seventy times seven times have I plucked up my hat and been about to depart. Seventy times seven times have you preposterously forced me to resume my seat. The 491st is too much. Fellow martyrs, have at him. Drag him down and crush him to atoms, that the place which knows him may know him no more. Hell, I guess. So uh, uh, he's basically saying, kill him, kill him. Thou art the man, cried James after a solemn pause, leaning over his cushion. Seventy times, seven times, didst thou gapingly contort thy visage. Seventy times, seven, did I take counsel with my soul. Lo, this is human weakness. This also may be absolved. The first of the seventy-first is come. Brethren, execute upon him the judgment written. Such honor have all his saints. Oh, so that so it looks like, looks like uh, Jabe's just turned the tables on poor Lockwood. Lockwood said, kill him. And Jabe said, no, good sir, we shall kill you because you are the devil himself. The devil himself, come. With that concluding word, the whole assembly exalting their pilgrim staves, rushed around me in a body, and I, having no weapon to raise in self-defense, per Joseph's warning, commenced grappling with Joseph, my nearest and most ferocious assailant for his. In the confluence of the multitude, several clubs crossed, blows aimed at me fell on other sconces. Presently the whole chapel resounded with rappings and counter-rappings. Every man's hand was against his neighbor, and Branderham, unwilling to remain idle, poured forth his zeal in a shower of loud taps on the boards of the pulpit, which responded so smartly that at last, to my unspeakable relief, they woke me. Whew! Well, that was a dream. 
I mean, should we just read on or should we try to interpret it before we get to Lockwood's interpretation, which presumably is coming of some sort? He is brought to this place. He is brought to this chapel without a weapon, without a pilgrim's staff with which to defend himself. Joseph says you cannot gain admittance into your home without it. There he is forced to endure a sermon on sin. At a certain point, he can take no more. Uh, He condemns the preacher and is then condemned himself to be beaten by the congregation. What can it all mean? Is it possible that the interpretation has something to do with the accumulation of guilt and sorrow on Lockwood's shoulders and the desire to throw it off and perhaps the impossibility of such an effort? I don't know. That's the first thing that comes to mind, and why dwell on it when we're probably going to get the answer of some sort in the next paragraph? So they woke me. And what was it that had suggested the tremendous tumult? What had played Jabe's part in the row? Meaning like, uh, you know, the the sound of the, the staff. Merely the branch of a fir tree that touched my lattice as the blast wailed by and rattled its dry cones against the panes. I listened doubtingly an instant, detected the disturber, then turned and dozed and dreamt again, if possible, still more disagreeably than before. Oh, God, now we're going to get another dream? (sighs) All right. Okay, let's button up and die then. This time... I remembered I was lying in the oak closet, and I heard distinctly the gusty wind and the driving of the snow. I heard also the furred bough repeat its teasing sound and described it to the right cause, but it annoyed me so much that I resolved to silence it if possible. And, I thought, I rose and endeavored to unhasp the casement. The hook was soldered into the staple, a circumstance observed by me when awake but forgotten. I must stop it nevertheless, I muttered, knocking my knuckles through the glass and stretching an arm out to seize the importunate branch, instead of which my hands closed on the fingers of a little ice-cold hand. Ooh, that's spooky. You know, one of the things about this book is it's a little bit spooky. You know, there's black arts and all kinds of scary things that happen. A little ice-cold hand. The intense horror of nightmare came over me. I tried to draw back my arm, but the hand clung to it, and a most melancholy voice sobbed, Let me in, let me in. Who are you, I asked, struggling, meanwhile, to disengage myself. It's probably Catherine, you know, come home to roost. Catherine Linton, it replied shiveringly. Ah, see? Oh, but it replied shiveringly. Catherine Linton, it replied shiveringly. Why did I think of Linton? I had read Earnshaw twenty times for Linton. I'm come home. I'd lost my way on the moor. As it spoke, I discerned obscurely child's face looking through the window. Terror made me cruel, and finding it useless to attempt shaking the creature off, I pulled its wrist onto the broken pane and rubbed it to and fro till the blood ran down and soaked the bedclothes. Still it wailed, let me in, and maintained its tenacious gripe, almost maddening me with fear 
I like that. To, to not tenacious grip, tenacious gripe. Something that holds on just like a grip. I, I never connected those two words before. Grip and gripe. Love it. Let me in. How can I? I said at length. Let me go if you want me to let you in. The fingers relaxed. I snatched mine through the hole, hurriedly piled the books up in a pyramid against it, and stopped my ears to exclude the lamentable prayer. I seemed to keep them closed above a quarter of an hour, yet the instant I listened again, there was the doleful cry moaning on. Be gone, I shouted. I'll never let you in, not if you beg for twenty years. It is twenty years, mourned the voice. Twenty years. I've been a waif for twenty years. Thereat began a feeble scratching outside, and the pile of books moved as if thrust forward. I tried to jump up, but could not stir a limb, and so yelled aloud in a frenzy of fright. To my confusion, I discovered the yell was not ideal. Hasty footsteps approached my chamber door. Somebody pushed it open, with a vigorous hand, and a light glimmered through the squares at the top of the bed. I sat shuddering yet, and wiping the perspiration from my forehead, the intruder appeared to hesitate and muttered to himself. At last, he said in a half-whisper, plainly not expecting an answer, Is anyone here? I considered it best to confess my presence, for I knew Heathcliff's accents and feared he might search further if I kept quiet. With this intention... So is he still in the dream, or did he really call out? This is confusing me. A little sup of tea may clear the brain fog. But it didn't. I'm confused. Heathcliff stood near... Oh, with this intention, I turned and opened the panels... I shall not soon forget the effect my action produced. Heathcliff stood near the entrance, in his shirt and trousers, with a candle dripping over his fingers and his face as white as the wall behind him. The first creak of the oak startled him like an electric shock. The light leapt from his hold to a distance of some feet, and his agitation was so extreme that he could hardly pick it up. It is only your guest, sir, I called out desirous to spare him the humiliation of exposing his cowardice further. I had the misfortune to scream in my sleep owing to a frightful nightmare. I'm sorry I disturbed you. Oh, God confound you, Mr. Lockwood. I wish you were at the... Commenced my host... He didn't finish the sentence. Commenced my host setting the candle on a chair because he found it impossible to hold it steady. And who showed you up to this room, he continued, crushing his nails into his palms and grinding his teeth to subdue the maxillary convulsions. Who was it? I have a good mind to turn them out of the house this moment. It was your servant Zilla, I replied, flinging myself onto the floor and rapidly resuming my garments. I should not care if you did, Mr. Heathcliff. She richly deserves it. I suppose that she wanted to get another proof that the place was haunted at my expense. Well, it is, swarming with ghosts and goblins. You have reason in shutting it up, I assure you. No one will thank you for a dose in such a den. What do you mean, asked Heathcliff, and what are you doing? Lie down and finish up the night since you are here, but for heaven's sake, don't repeat that horrid noise. Nothing could excuse it, unless you are having your throat cut. If the little fiend had got in at the window, she probably would have strangled me, I returned. 
I'm not going to endure the persecutions of your hospitable ancestors again. Was not the Reverend James Branderham akin to you on your mother's side, and that minx, Catherine Linton, or Earnshaw, or however she was called? She must have been a changeling, wicked little soul. She told me she'd been walking the earth these twenty years, a just punishment for her mortal transgressions, I've no doubt. Scarcely were these words uttered when I recollected the association of Heathcliff's with Catherine's name in the book, which had completely slipped from my memory till thus awakened. I blushed at my inconsideration, but without showing further consciousness of the offense, I hastened to add, the truth is, sir, I passed the first part of the night in here. I stopped afresh. I was about to say perusing those old volumes. Then it would have revealed my knowledge of their written as well as their printed contents. So, correcting myself, I went on, and spelling over the name scratched on that window ledge, a monotonous occupation calculated to set me asleep, like counting, or what can you mean by talking in this way to me, thundered Heathcliff, with savage vehemence. How, how dare you? Under my roof. God, he's mad to speak so. And he struck his forehead with rage. I did not know whether to resent this language. I mean, I keep reading and reading and reading without commentary. And uh, I suppose it's because the book is good. Like, I'm just, I'm just reading along, like, just kind of wanting to know what happens. And that's, that rubs against, I think, the intention of this podcast, the stated business model, which is to uh, uh, read a work of classic literature out loud and comment on it as I go. I'm certainly reading out loud. No mistake there, but I am hardly commenting on it as I go. But there's a row here between Lockwood and Heathcliff. Shit just got personal, you know? Lockwood is saying, buddy, you got a ghost. It's, the, it's that tramp Catherine. He didn't call her a tramp, but he did say her mortal transgressions. I mean, that, that those could be anything. But because I am a dyed-in-the-wool sexist, I go immediately towards trampishness for no good reason at all. But, buddy, you got a ghost. She's trying to get in through, into the house. And uh, probably serves her right for being out there in the moors for 20 years. And Heathcliff is saying, how dare you? How dare you speak to me this way in my house? Who the hell do you think you are? You interloper. You tea crasher. You renter. Nothing more than a, than a, a transient lodger here in this American town. And you come into my home and speak to me in this manner? How dare you? And who showed you to this room? I mean, we, we suspected, right, when, when, what's her name, Zola, Zella, Zilla, what's her name? Ah, uh, come on, Michael. Well, you know, I mean, the, the, the house lady, Zilla. When she showed him, she said, look, I'll take you up to the room, but Master doesn't like anybody in there. Why? Why? I don't know. I don't know. Because it's haunted, dummy. She knew it was haunted. No wonder Heathcliff doesn't like anybody in there. That was Catherine's room, you know, and she gone. She's out there on the moors trying to get back in, but she can't. And uh, in his imaginings, Lockwood is being beaten about for interfering in the comings and goings of this household. So we'll end it there. I resolve, this is my New Year's resolution, I resolve to do a better job commentating as I go than just reading along because you can just buy an audiobook for that and Chances are they're going to do a much, much better job of just reading the book than I am. But they'll do less complaining about Savannah than I will. And the bullets falling on people's heads. So we'll end there. I hope uh, your new year was pleasant. 
no matter what time you are listening to this. It could be years hence. I hope your new year was pleasant, and I I hope it uh, continues to be pleasant and shall be pleasant in the future, whenever this recording finds your ears. But here, in early 2022, all things are status quo. And status quo, uh, I will remind you if you are listening in some future generation, is shite. And that is my gripe. As we conclude this episode of Obscure, we will do it again next week on another uh, 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 commentating. That's eh, not good. On another read aloud. Yeah, not better, I guess. On another read aloud episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedron. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time. <laughs>